This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. It's been a little over a year since the war broke out in Ukraine. The invasion continues to cause loss and pain beyond the borders of Ukraine and Russia, physically, emotionally, and economically. Many people have been asking, when is this going to end? It also begs the question, what are some ongoing challenges that the people face and the resources that they need? Today, we'll have Larissa Babi joining us on the show to help answer those questions. She's a Ukrainian-American writer, translator, and dancer living in Kyiv, and she'll tell us what life looks like in Ukraine after being there for over a year. But first, we're joined by Dana Buchin. She's an immigration attorney at Mirtha Kalida, an honorary consul of Romania to Connecticut. Dana, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Dana, can you talk to us about what do the lives of Ukrainian refugees look like in Connecticut after a year? Sure. I could speak uh, on that topic, given our experience with the Connecticut for Ukraine refugee matching program, which I founded in April 2022, um, as I was returning from the border with Mexico, where I went to help a lot of Ukrainian refugees. And the four days that I was there at the Tijuana San Diego checkpoint, I um tried to assist about 2,000 Ukrainian refugees to enter the United States on humanitarian parole, which was the only program that was in existence at that time before the current United for Ukraine federal parole program. Um, That's how this matching program started, because as I brought back with me three refugees to Connecticut, um, the press covered our arrival at the Bradley Airport, and uh, due to that press, I had a lot of Connecticut sponsors reach out to me and say, how can we help? How can we host Ukrainian families in our homes? And uh, on the other side, the folks from the refugee camps in Tijuana, Mexico, um, still remembered me and remembered my ability to um match refugees with sponsors, meaning folks who are willing to take refugees into their homes for a few months until they got back on their feet. And so the folks from the refugee camps contacted me because they had refugees in need of sponsors, and the sponsors contacted me because they wanted to help refugees. And so that was the birth of a matching service. Um, We do this pro bono. I am a private immigration lawyer, so my law firm um, is doing this as a pro bono service in cooperation with the Honorary Consulate of Romania to Connecticut, uh, given that I am the Honorary Consul uh, of Romania. And um, I assembled a group of volunteers to assist me with this program. And so with time, we developed a system of matching Ukrainians to Connecticut sponsors. Uh, There were out-of-state sponsors who also reached out to me, but I chose to refer them to other nonprofits um, around the country, reputable nonprofits who are affiliated with Welcome.us initiative of welcoming humanitarian parolees from Ukraine. And so uh, I only focus on Connecticut at this point in time. And um, we managed to match so far 91 Ukrainian refugees who arrived 
most of whom already arrived in Connecticut. There's some of them who are, were trying to bring out of Ukraine right now, but most of them are here already in Connecticut with their sponsors. And um, I want to talk a little bit about their lives. Um, so the first ones who arrived through United for Ukraine arrived in June, and uh, they keep arriving even to this day. Um, at first, they stay with their sponsors, uh, with their sponsors in their homes with their families, and they're expected to become self-sufficient in three to six months. Um, the sponsors are taking care of, uh, you know, their their transportation needs, uh, making sure that they get driver's licenses, uh, connect with uh, refugee resettlement agencies such as IRIS. Uh, Siri, um, uh, Jewish Family Services, and a bunch of other nonprofits who can assist them with getting the benefits um, that federal government bestowed upon them, like uh, cash assistance or health insurance coverage, etc. And so the sponsors are basically taking care of integrating them in the local society. And the sponsor doesn't have to be alone. It could be a group of sponsors. And in fact, the most successful combination is when there's a faith-based group or a community-based group of sponsors and there are multiple individuals in there and they take turns assisting with transportation or licensing or job placement or what have you. Um, one of the challenges we're facing in welcoming more Ukrainian refugees to Connecticut is housing. We currently have over 300 refugees on our list who want to come to Connecticut specifically. Um, but we and, and we also have sponsors who would be willing to assist them in some way to integrate in the local society. But housing is a big there's a big shortage in housing in Connecticut. Uh, in other words, we don't have places to put these people in. Um, and so if anyone hears me and anyone wants to help and they have empty, uh, they have an empty house because they're empty nesters or for whatever reasons, uh, that would be a perfect situation for hosting a Ukrainian family. Um, right now, we're focusing specifically on Ukrainians from Ukraine rather than other refugees, refugee camps uh, around Europe because of the um, loss of electricity and power and all the issues in Ukraine. And evidently, people in Ukraine need this matching service more than people who are already safe throughout Europe. And so um, the, the other challenge we're having besides housing is communication, precisely because of the bombings um, and the loss of power. Uh, sometimes our Ukrainian refugees are losing internet connection and they cannot communicate with us or with their sponsors. And there have been cases where we completely lost touch. And we're actually quite concerned about some of the refugees that we were trying to bring here. We haven't heard from them in weeks. Um, so that's those are some of the challenges with trying to pluck people out of Ukraine. And the way people sign up with us is a lot of it is through folks who are already here, Ukrainians who are already here, and they know someone back home, like a friend or a family who is trying to get here, 
and the, their referrals from existing parolees. Um, our whole model of matching is geared towards the concept of, of integration in the local community. And we, we get inspiration from the refugee resettlement agencies in the state, like IRIS, who's running a sponsor circle. And um, by the way, uh, anybody who wants to become a sponsor could sign up to that sponsor circle and get training to host any refugee family. Um, and it's also, it goes around the concept of achieving self-sufficiency, which is communicated to the refugees before they even come, um, so that we achieve a very successful match between refugee and sponsor. Um, the self-sufficiency, we usually use six months as a measure of by when they should achieve self-sufficiency in terms of by when they should have all their paperwork done, the work permit, the driving license, the social security number, the health coverage, as well as ideally a job that enables them to get housing somewhere else outside of the sponsor's home. Um, as, as for um, the hurdles that they've been facing, the biggest hurdle Ukrainians are facing is their immigration status. We praise the administration's uh, initiative under United for Ukraine. It's a great tool to offer temporary protection to these folks. However, it's only for one year if you came through the border or for two years if you came under United for Ukraine. After two years are up, everybody's asking me now, what's next, Dana? Um, and especially the folks whose parole is expiring in April, when the ones that came through the border with Mexico and the ones I actually helped in April 2022. They're all asking, hey, my status here is about to expire and there's no word from the administration about what's next. What are we gonna do? And that induces a lot of anxiety in folks. And uh, because it trickles down to everything from work permits, their work permit expires in April. So employers could get very, anxious about what to do with these folks beyond the expiration of their work permit. Uh, driver's licenses are not going to be given beyond the expiration of that work permit. So what's going to happen to them? And so this anxiety is motivating me to advocate uh, for policies at the federal level to one, automatically extend the parole of those who came through the border in April 2022, and two, a permanent solution to their status so that those work permits or driver's licenses no longer expire. And a permanent solution is uh, available via the introduction of the Ukrainian Adjustment Act, which I am very pleased to inform that um, Senator Blumenthal just announced that he is going to introduce this legislation and he announced it during the conference we had this past Saturday February 25, organized by Quinnipiac University, that was on the topic of Ukraine at the one-year mark. And I was very pleased that the senator took upon himself this, uh, this uh, task of uh, securing permanent status for Ukrainian parolees who were displaced by the war on U.S. soil. Um, as a next step, in order to support Ukrainian refugees secure this permanent status, 
folks should consider signing our, an online petition on change.org that we have going for uh, the Ukrainian Adjustment Act. The more signatures we get, the more likely it is that it's going to catch nationwide attention. Um, and so that is, that's one of the legal hurdles that, that they face that if taken care of would make folks feel more protected in having a permanent status here. Um, one other thing about our program is that it is very Connecticut centric. It, we want people who want to be in Connecticut. As a matter of fact, on our website, ctukraine.org, we describe why Connecticut. We pitch Connecticut to Ukrainians who are looking at the United States. They're looking for a way out. They're looking for a new life and they're, they don't have family ties anywhere else. So we're trying to pitch Connecticut. Um, and we pre-screen for that interest. We want to make sure that people will be happy and adjusted in this great state. Um, like I said, housing is still an issue, but once we identify housing solutions and more sponsors, Connecticut should be a great state for them to start a new life. We have a very strong Ukrainian-American community with uh, lots of churches, uh, the Ukrainian National Home in, uh, in Hartford. Uh, we have a strong Central and Eastern European community around the Ukrainian community, the Polish community, the Romanian community. By the way, uh, all these Eastern European allies have been helping Ukrainian refugees a lot. Um, just by way of example, the Romanian business owners have been employing Ukrainian refugees and they've been sponsoring Ukrainian refugees. So, uh, and that's because the Central and Eastern European nations have understood, have understood for some time now uh, the terrible effects of Russian aggression. And so we are, um, we are in complete solidarity with the Ukrainian people and uh, while the Ukrainian community is very busy rallying up support on humanitarian aid to Ukraine, the Eastern European allies, we are very active in taking care of Ukrainian refugees who are coming into the state, as well as assisting with the humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. Well, we're going to be hearing more about the hurdles and talking more about the support that Connecticut is giving. But we're going to take a moment here. Um, Connecticut Public's Frankie Graziano recently spoke with some of those Ukrainian refugees that have come to the state. Here's Masha Kolikovo. I still remember the fear on my kids' faces when they heard the rockets above the heads and when they saw the tanks, soldiers with weapons, and when they so burned bodies next to the tanks. It was a nightmare. It's still hard. We're struggling every day. But thanks God, we met a lot of nice people that have been helping us. That was, so Dana, that was one person that we've heard from so far. And I know you mentioned that housing, communication, and immigration status are just some of the hurdles that you're seeing that the refugees are going through. What are some other support that you hope to see Connecticut residents provide? You know, what are other things that people can do to help them? Sure. Um, a week ago or so, I testified in front of the Connecticut legislature in support of a bill 
that would allow Ukrainian language to be added to the list of languages in which the driving knowledge test could be administered. Uh, you'd be surprised to know that um, there's no Ukrainian among the languages that are currently being offered. And that really impacts the Ukrainian parolee's ability to get a driver's license. And as you know, without a driver's license in Connecticut, you cannot do much. You cannot go to your job. You cannot drop off your kids to school, etc. So I am hoping that anybody who listens to this would be in support of that bill um, that adds Ukrainian in, in that it removes the 1% limitation on, uh, on, on the number of the general population that you have to have uh, in order to add your language to the driving test. Because right now, if you don't make up more than 1% of the state population, according to the last census, you don't get to take the driving knowledge test in your native language. Um, and so if we eliminate that 1% requirement, then languages such as Ukrainian and Afghan refugee languages, as well as uh, uh, Roma, uh, Romanian languages for the Roma population, etc., and, and Haitian Creole, these are the languages of the new refugees that are not being counted in any census. They're too new to be um, counted in the 2020 census. And I very much doubt that even if there was a census today, that they would capture all these new populations. So the solution to this is for the general public to support adding Ukrainian language to any state um, services that we offer, because these folks didn't have time to learn language, uh, English language, as they were escaping bombings and a war. And while they're here, of course, they're going to English uh, as a second language lessons, but that takes time, takes months. And by the way, it takes a driving license <laughs> to get to. <laughs> and so uh, the driver's license is just a bottleneck that we need to solve for these folks. Um, many other things that the public could do. They could uh, go on our website, ctukraine.org, and sign up as, as sponsors um, in any way they desire. I understand that some people may not have housing, but if you do a group of people, some of whom have housing available, others have time on their hands, they're retired and they may be able to drive refugees around. If you do a group of folks, of supporters, then contact us and um, you will have all the training that you need because there's IRIS and there's other agencies that offer it. And we will match you with, with a Ukrainian family whom we're going to pre-screen um, and, and who is going to understand what it takes to successfully integrate into Connecticut, into the U.S. slash Connecticut society, including the concept of developed self-sufficiency, which uh, as a parenthesis, I want to tell you that Ukrainians have no problem with this concept. Uh, in fact, if anything, they're a bit on the extreme, extremely self-sufficient side, um, not understanding that it, they need help in order to integrate. They and any other new immigrant needs help with integration, uh, especially when you have limited English sufficiency and a limited knowledge of the conditions on the ground. And that's what sponsors are for. Uh, they are the liaison between newly 
arrived immigrants and the locals, the local society. So be a good host and sign up with us or with Iris. Sign up as a sponsor, as a welcomer of refugees. And that's what the world needs more of, especially in light of the revolutionary and new concept of individual sponsorship. We're transitioning currently from the old method of refugee resettlement into a more of an individual sponsorship model whereby ordinary American citizens, as well as green card holders and a bunch of other legal statuses are able to individually sponsor refugees. My only question is, if you could do that, why wouldn't you? Well, on that note, just want to remind people that for those who can help, all the information that Dana pointed out today is available on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. You've been listening to Dana Buchin. She's an immigration attorney at Mirtha Kalina and honorary consul of Romania to Connecticut. Thank you so much, Dana, for your time today and sharing all that amazing information with us. Thank you. Coming up next, we will have Alex Kuzma. He's the Chief Development Officer for the Ukrainian Catholic University Foundation to talk to us about Connecticut's response to the war efforts in Ukraine. And we'll also have Larissa Babi, a Ukrainian-American who decided to move to Kyiv when the war broke out to do what she can do to help. Let us know if you have a question for them, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. It's been a year since news of the invasion of Ukraine hit our TV screens and news headlines. The World Health Organization reports roughly one-third of people in active combat zones have no access to the health care they need. And AmeriCares is reporting that while they've been able to provide medical supplies, generators for power, and mental health support, more help is always needed. Here to talk about what that work looks like, both on the ground in Ukraine and here in the United States, is Alex Kuzma. He's a chief development officer for the Ukrainian Catholic University Foundation, and Larissa Babi, a Ukrainian-American writer and dancer who's been helping the local communities in Ukraine. 
Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. I want to start with you, Larissa. You started to, or you decided to move to Ukraine when the invasion happened. What has your life looked like since living in Ukraine? Well, actually, I've been living in Kyiv since 2005. So you could say that I decided to not leave Ukraine um, last January and February when the United States was urging all of its citizens to leave the country um, in light of the threat of a Russian invasion. Um, so what has life been like? It has been the first half year after February 24th, involved a lot of moving around. Um, again, I have, I live in Kyiv. I've lived here for over 17 years. And on February 24th, I packed up my cat um, and fled my apartment, not knowing when or whether I would ever return, whether there would be something to return to. Um, and I spent a lot of those, those months helping various um, grassroots organizations, basically through friends and friends of friends, um, both provide medical supplies to people fighting on the front lines, um, basically, you know, helping to coordinate um, buying things abroad that were not available in Ukraine and getting them to the people who need them and later helping more directly with a military unit with fundraising for um, their aerial reconnaissance activities and building drones from scratch. Um, but I've also through this entire year, I have been writing about my experiences precisely because things have been changing so much. Um, and you know, when you find yourself in this completely unfamiliar conditions, um, plus it was important for me to kind of keep in touch with a lot of friends and loved ones who live abroad, who didn't know what was happening with me. Um, so I started writing in English um, and eventually began uh, writing a newsletter on Substack uh, for a broader audience, basically to give people outside of Ukraine an insight um, which is different from what the news are doing because there's a lot of great journalism happening, but a more kind of humble, like this is what one individual's life is like living in a country that has suddenly been thrust into full-scale war. And for those who are interested, Larissa's newsletter is called A Kind of Refugee, which is on Substack, like she mentioned. And, you know, I imagine that helps you sort of process what's happening and sort of a a journal, as you, if, if you will, for others like ourselves to learn about what's going on based on your experiences. How have you been able to manage your mental health and anxiety while living there? Do you ever feel helpless as to how much you can actually help? Well, um, the writing definitely, the writing helps a lot uh, because when you find yourself in very intense situations, you know, you just kind of your mind is working many, many times at, at speed um, and just kind of dealing with, with having to make decisions quickly um, and writing helps me kind of reflect and think what, what has happened. Um, obviously living in these conditions takes its toll. It takes its toll differently on different people. Um, I am also, I think you mentioned a dancer and I am a somatics practitioner, which is basically 
a broad term meaning kind of mind body practice. And so I teach movement classes. Um, for the past several months, I've also been teaching them to soldiers who are rehabilitating from injuries uh, that they've received in battle. And so between, yeah, I would say movement and writing, they kind of keep me grounded and in contact and thinking about what is happening around me and, and you know, from, they keep me from getting lost in, in anxiety and imaginary fears. So you've been helping through writing, you've been helping through translating, and now you're helping through dancing. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means and what has that been like for you to be able to provide support through dancing? It's really important for me to be involved with the people who are defending Ukraine directly through the military. I think I discovered this, you know, last spring. Um, I have a great respect, to put it mildly. I mean, I really have a tremendous admiration for every ordinary Ukrainian person who signed up um, to defend their homeland. The majority of the Ukrainian military are not professional soldiers. They come from all walks of life. There are women, there are men, there are teachers, IT specialists. Um, and I find, you know, personally, like whatever I can do, especially from, you know, based on things that I, I know how to do already, however, I can contribute those efforts to help these people do what they're doing, which is essentially protecting me and all of the other civilians in this country and in a greater extent, really defending and protecting the entire world by stopping Russia in Ukraine and not letting it expand further into NATO countries um, is really perhaps the most important thing that, that is happening right now. And so um, I'm trying to give what I can in that direction. And in your newsletter, you had said, war is a state of mind which never loses sight of mortality. How have you had to adjust to life in war? And how has that experience brought the community together, change relationships, perhaps as you gather as a community? I think the greatest and cruelest lesson of war is loss. Um, I grew up in the United States. And actually, I grew up in Connecticut precisely because all four of my Ukrainian grandparents in 1943, in the midst of World War II, were forced to leave their homeland. So in some sense, maybe I inherited this sort of sense of, of loss. And um, when life is comfortable and your kind of day-to-day -day is pretty stable, I think we tend to have, you know, an attitude of, mm, you know, looking on the bright side and thinking about recovery. Um, and even if a human being can recover from really brutal events, as long as they're alive, there are things that just cannot be recovered. And all of these hundreds of thousands of people that have been killed since uh, Russia's full-scale invasion on February 24th, those lives cannot be returned the children who have been taken from territories that Russia occupied into Russia and put up for adoption by Russian families, 
it's not clear you know, on what conditions. Ukraine can't, has no right to invade Russia to take those children back. We don't, you know, who knows if they will be returned. And the cities that have been destroyed, even if they are rebuilt, they will not be returned to what they were before. And I think that's something really important to remember that even um, I have such tremendous gratitude and I'm just really impressed and heartened by all of the work and support that you're doing in Connecticut to help Ukrainian refugees and just tremendous amounts of humanitarian aid and also aid to help the military. Um, but like the, if, how to say, the thing that needs to be stopped is Russia's invasion and Russia's occupation of Ukraine, because every single day that it continues, it brings more irreparable loss that we can't bring back. We can't bring back our soldiers who are killed. Um, and so that's why I kind of keep bringing back the focus to stopping the war, which means aiding Ukraine militarily to help it do its work to deoccupy its territory and stop Russia's aggression permanently. Well, what you just described, that there's immense pressure. You know, the war has put on its its citizens, its communities, and yourself, like you're talking about. And I think it's also important to note that there is also no universal experience in Ukraine and that everyone is processing this war differently. Can you talk about that? Um, what can I say? I, I guess I can say, yes, um, in the sense, because it's not universal, everybody's process is different. I can't speak to somebody else's process. Um, right. Can you speak about maybe what are you hearing from your fellow community members of, you know, what they're thinking or what they're going through? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, most of my greater community are all people who are some way or other aiding their fellow citizens, um, either directly in the war efforts to defend the country. And I also have many friends who are offering psychosocial support and kind of helping other people cope with the consequences of war. So I do, I have friends, I have a friend who started an organization that's been working really actively for the past year and she drives around um, basically along the entire front to the east to the south bringing you know just basic supplies everything from from diapers to chocolates to candles uh, to people in need and so I think there there is what what I can say that it's maybe I've witnessed that's universal is a huge um, this sort of generosity, a kind of human generosity that perhaps because everyone in Ukraine kind of understands that their fellow Ukrainian has been through some kind of unspeakable loss. And we don't necessarily talk about it because you just understand, you know, like if I've lost, then they've lost. And you, instead of dwelling on your own suffering or even on another person's suffering, there's, you know, I keep seeing this kind of neighborliness, um, you know, of, of people giving, even when they don't have a lot, even when they've lost so much, 
always finding something that they can give and share with another person, whether it's a friend or a stranger who just happens to cross your path. And that's something I find very inspiring also as a person who grew up in the United States where people have more material resources often. And so there's a certain kind of individuality and a pride in being able to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And as Dana had mentioned, you know, Ukrainians also have this, they have this degree of self-sufficiency and also sharing. And it's, it's the sharing that, that really um, I admire. And, and it's something that I think we can all learn from. You've been listening to Larissa Babi, a Ukrainian-American writer who's been providing support for Ukrainian communities. Coming up next, uh, we will be also hearing from Alex Kuzma. He's the Chief Development Officer for the Ukrainian Catholic University Foundation, who will be speaking with us about Connecticut's response to the war efforts in Ukraine. They will both be with us next uh, segment. Let us know if you have any questions about what's going on in Ukraine. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're diving straight back to our conversation with Larissa Babi, a Ukrainian-American writer and dancer who's been helping the local communities in Ukraine, and Alex Kuzma. He's the Chief Development Officer for the Ukrainian Catholic University Foundation. Alex, I want to start with you. Larissa's been talking about the neighborness of, of people and the generosity and humanness of how people are outpouring their support for Ukraine. I want to ask, what do you think of the United States' response so far and the response of our lawmakers in Connecticut? Thank you, Catherine. Um, there's no question that the response from the American community and the Ukrainian-American community here in Connecticut has been phenomenal. Um, we've seen uh, huge campaigns at the grassroots level. Um, for instance, the Ukrainian National Home in Hartford that Dana had mentioned, um, they had uh, packed and delivered five truckloads worth of humanitarian supplies um, in the early stages of the war. Um, Yale New Haven Hospital, Dr. Andrei Zinchuk and Myron Melnick and people with the Ukrainian American Veterans Association have been shipping 
massive amounts of surgical supplies to help the wounded civilians and wounded soldiers uh, that are coming offline in some of these embattled cities like Mariupol or, or Kherson. And then we've seen a lot of just very creative activities, uh, you know, benefit concerts, art exhibits, uh, photography exhibits. And so we're very grateful um, for this, as you say, uh, this huge outpouring of support, humanitarian aid. And some of it's been incredibly creative. You know, people have um, shipped out generators so that hospitals that are being bombed out are can can still function. And um, friends of, of mine from uh, California and Rhode Island shipped out a massive amount of solar powered lanterns, for instance, so that people living uh, with power blackouts can still read to their children or students can still continue their studies as they're living in underground bomb shelters uh, for days and days on end. Um, as far as the the congressional delegation, I mean, we, we're incredibly lucky. I, I travel around a lot of other areas of the country and um, our congressional delegation, especially Senators Blumenthal and Murphy and, and Congresswoman DeLauro and Johanna Hayes and Larson and Courtney and uh, Jim Himes have been phenomenal. They've been fantastic in the level of aid that they've um, provided. Uh, Senator Blumenthal uh, just uh, returned from his third trip to Ukraine within the last year. Um, and he visited the, the slaughterhouse of Bucha, you know, the, the massacre site. Um, and he was deeply moved by what he saw in terms of the, the mass graves where men, women, and children were, you know, tied with, uh, with uh, handcuffs behind their backs and shot dead um, in, this, in the same way that the uh, Stalinist um, secret police um, committed these, these kinds of war crimes. So um, we're, we're very grateful um, for this creative outpouring. Um, and unfortunately, as Larissa said, we're going to need a lot more because um, the, the war continues to grind on and uh, we're going to have to uh, continue with uh, as much humanitarian aid and military aid as possible uh, because the, in some ways the greatest uh, humanitarian aid is to prevent the army of Russia to penetrate any deeper into Ukrainian territory because what we've seen wherever they've occupied uh, territory they've committed torture and um, you know removal of children from their parents um, just last week uh, Yale University ho hosted a, a forum um, at their genocides uh, program uh, where they interviewed two women who had undergone months of detention and torture including electric shock torture by uh, Russian soldiers and, and Russian um, secret police. So this is a, this is a massive genocide and the world has to respond um, to prevent this from going any further. Just want to share a quick comment from Eileen on Facebook. She says, I believe the free world should give Ukraine all the support needed to repel and defeat Russia in no uncertain terms, ASAP, full onslaught. And Alex, can you talk a little bit about how it felt seeing President Joe Biden in Ukraine? What are your thoughts about his visit? And what do you think he was signaling visiting so close to the anniversary of the war last week? The symbolism and the power of that symbolism can't be uh, overstated. Uh, I, I don't think people realize the kind of risk that President Biden took in flying on Air Force One into Poland, having to take this 12-hour train ride across the Polish border. Um, the Russians know where those rail lines are, and they were informed that he was coming to the country. So 
it was an incredible act of defiance on his part to come and visit Kyiv and then to visit the memorials to the thousands of Ukrainian soldiers that have been slaughtered by by Russian troops. And, um, you know, we to, to kind of grasp the scale of this war, we have to remember that um, the, the Ukrainian army's lost about 100,000 troops. Um, the Russian army has lost closer to 200,000 troops, and that's in one year. We lost 52,000 of our soldiers in the Vietnam War over the course of 10 years. And so the level of carnage, this sort of mindless slaughter that Putin has inflicted on the Ukrainian people is really unbelievable. I mean, he's this is a madman who thought that he was going to demonstrate the grandeur of the Russian army. Um, so far, the Russian army has only demonstrated its barbarism and its ineptitude um, because they haven't been able to hold any of the territory that they invaded, um, even with their um, huge forces. And even with this new mobilization of 300,000 troops that that uh, Putin is throwing against the Ukrainian lines in these sort of barbaric, um, you know, human waves, uh, similar to the, the Battle of Stalingrad, um, they haven't been able to, to break the Ukrainian lines. And, you know, so the Ukrainian-American people are incredibly proud of our folks. I mean, you think about it, the Nazis, it took the Nazis eight days to conquer France, eight days. Ukrainian people have held off one of the most brutal and largest armies in the world for over a year, and they've actually pushed them back, even with untrained um, citizen soldiers like our, you know, we think of our Minutemen during the American Revolution. Um, these are people that have pushed back one of the most brutal armies in the world, and they've fought them to a standstill. Now, I think it's really important um, that the American people really support President Biden and the U.S. Congress, which has shown remarkable bipartisan support for Ukraine. I mean, this is a time where there's almost no bipartisan support for anything in America. Um, and yet Ukraine has won uh, the hearts and minds of the, the American people. So I think the, one of the first things that has to happen, um, Senator Blumenthal just introduced a, a resolution to declare Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. I think every decent-minded human being should be able to support that resolution because we've seen this these acts of terror um, in front of our eyes. We, you know, unlike previous acts of genocide that were kept out of view, Americans can see any given night um, Russian missiles slamming into hospitals, slamming into residential buildings, slamming into orphanages. We we see it in front of our eyes. And so we have to respond as decent human beings to this act, these acts of genocide. So we've got a couple minutes left, but I do want to ask, you know, you mentioned the brutality of the entire experience and, and it has gone beyond the borders, really. And at home, the war in Ukraine has led to rising inflation and food prices. What does this look like around the world? Well, um, as brutal as the as the acts of genocide that the Russians are committing in Ukraine, we have to recognize that there's the potential, not just the potential, it's already happening. There's a collateral genocide that's happening in the Middle East and in North Africa because Ukrainians are incredibly productive people. And Ukraine used to be known as the breadbasket of Europe. It's now the breadbasket of half of Africa and half of the Middle East because Ukrainians 
until this war broke out, were exporting, not only were they feeding themselves, but they were exporting massive amounts of grain, sunflower oil, honey, barley, you name it, um, soybeans. These supplies were helping countries like Yemen and Egypt and Sudan and Nigeria and Burkina Faso to prevent massive famine and massive starvation. The Russian blockade of the Black Sea ports and its destruction of the Black Sea ports. Um, I mean, fortunately, most of those missiles have been blown out of the sky by the Ukrainians' incredibly talented, uh, you know, drone operators and, and anti-aircraft batteries. But, you know, this is a worldwide problem. We, we're suffering, you know, we complain here when, when the price of eggs goes up by, you know, by 50 cents. There are people that are starving to death in Ethiopia, and and they're going to be starving because there are thousands of tons of food that are not being released by the Russian Navy. And even though there's been some modest, um, you know, uh, negotiations of of some freighters being shipped out, this is a global disaster, and the world needs to recognize that. We've never seen anything like this. Um, the world is interconnected and, and entangled. And so we as Americans really need to continue this humanitarian aid to Ukraine. And we also need to call out the handful of really morally depraved individuals in this country, um, including a couple of Yale graduates, Josh Hawley and uh, J.D. Vance and a Trinity College grad, Tucker Carlson, that are continuing to basically cheerlead um, Putin's campaign of slaughter against Ukraine. And um, they need to be held accountable for their propaganda and their uh, support of Russian disinformation. Um, this is a very tough fight. We're all in it, whether we realize it or not. And we need to act as decent humans and to challenge the brutality and the genocide that we see unfolding before our very eyes. You've been hearing from Alex Kuzma. He's the Chief Development Officer for the Ukrainian Catholic University Foundation and Larissa Babi, a Ukrainian-American writer and dancer who's been helping the local communities in Ukraine. We appreciate you both so much for being on the show today, and thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us, and thank you for your support for Ukrainians in Ukraine. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.